0: The Art Newspaper Weekly Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, where the historic and modern are equally valued. Hello, and welcome to the Art Newspaper Weekly Podcast. My name's Ben Luke. This week, we continue our preview of shows in the first half of 2018, turning to the US. We'll be hearing from our correspondents in New York and Los Angeles.
1: There is maybe a political message in that it wouldn't hurt right now to think about the real meaning of patriotism here in the States.
0: But first this week, a show we mentioned in our UK and Europe preview in the last podcast, Charles I, King Collector at the Royal Academy in London. I'm joined on the line by Bendor Grosvenor, art historian, broadcaster and regular contributor to the art newspaper to discuss the show. Bendor, when we talk about the Charles I collection, what do we mean and what happened to it?
2: uh we mean the great probably the greatest uh single uh, collection of art amassed in britain uh, by king charles the in the early 17th century um he was he, he was crazy about art and um, one of my theories is that you can draw a a parallel between monarchs who, who are not so good at ruling and who love art, and I think Charles is the ultimate demonstration of that because he was mad about art, and of course he got his head chopped off. Um, <laughs> and after he got his head chopped off, uh, he the the Commonwealth under Oliver Cromwell, um, decided to have a, a you know a big yard sale, if you like, uh, of all his his artworks, and uh, there was a huge um auction I presume I think basically a a number of days uh, which was quite well cataloged and we've got all the catalogs and records for who bought what and where Um, and uh, much of the art went overseas much of it went to British collectors Um, some of it for trivial prices for example uh, the Salvatore Mundi by Leonardo da Vinci which uh, made that record 450 million dollar sale price um, late last year at Christie's in New York Uh, that made just 30 quid in the in the in the sale of the king's goods in 1650 um which was a cheap price compared to other artworks um uh, and, and, uh, so lots of it went overseas. Uh, when, now when Charles II, the restoration, uh, comes back when the monarchy is restored in 1660, Charles II is very keen to get as much art as he can back. And by and large, he's successful in, uh, in restoring what artworks remain in the UK. Um, you know, it was basically hand back the pictures or we'll chop your head off too. Uh, but obviously he couldn't do much about the art that was overseas. So the exhibition today at the Royal Academy, um, is really the first attempt to try and bring back some highlights of Charles I's great collection.
0: And how successful has it been in doing so? So I suppose the key factor is what are the overseas loans like?
2: Well, um, you know, they're they're pretty good. Uh, I was um, at the private view um, on Tuesday um, and uh, I was ambushed by a BBC film crew making a documentary about the exhibition Uh, and suddenly a camera was swung on me and they said, what do you think? And uh, (laughs) my immediate reaction was that – and it's true – that this is one of the greatest feats of modern curation uh, of modern times. Um, And by that I mean that they have – the Royal Academy and the Royal Collection between them have have really – you know, worked miracles in bringing some, some pictures back, particularly if you consider that the Royal Academy um, doesn't have really much of its own collection to sort of lend out. And so much uh, curation these days and putting on exhibitions is about that bartering process, you know, you lend me your Raphael, I'll lend you my Michelangelo. Now, the Royal Academy can't really do that. Um, so in terms of cajoling pictures from places like the Prado and what have you uh, to come to London, they've, they've, they've worked a miracle
0: obviously there are some things that ha- that haven't made it into the show so for instance they weren't able to get the salvatore mundi and neither were they able to get the leonardo john the baptist yes i suppose some pictures will you know
2: those uh, leonardos and the louvre are not likely to be traveling anytime soon um now i suppose separately in terms of the salvatore mundi now i do sense a reticence uh, amongst a- curators of this this wonderful exhibition um you know to not put anything too uh you know controversial in so all the attributions and all the pictures are you know they're very safe and established uh things and in part that's a shame because there's lots of new stuff out there um but you know there there are still many riches to see and i it's it'll clearly be a blockbuster uh, it'll be you know one of the shows of of the decade tell me about your highlights Well, now I'm, you know, I'm one of the world's greatest Van Dyke anoraks. So really this exhibition, (laughs) Van Dyke steals the show because there's lots and lots of pictures by Van Dyke. Um, uh, Amongst them is the uh, very uh, handsome self-portrait with the sunflower, that famous Van Dyke uh, image, um, which is in the very first room when you walk in. So uh, for a Van Dyke aficionado like me, it's just uh, one treat after another. And then you get to what for me is the Van Dyke Holy of Holies. They have assembled uh, all four of his large portraits of Charles I, and you can stand in a room in the center of the Royal Academy's great rooms and see all four of them staring back at you. Uh, and this, you know, for someone like me, is a moment of profound um, art historical emotion uh, to see Charles staring back through Van Dyck.
0: I was really struck by the sheer breadth of the collection. Some monarchs develop tastes in very particular periods or particular geographical locations. Charles I's tastes were very broad and extremely discerning, weren't they? Yes. I
2: mean, we are used to hearing that Charles I was mad about Titian, and we see a, you know, a good number of Titians in the exhibition uh, and other um, Italian art, but... Um, there is a good room of uh, of Northern Renaissance art. Um, and in the catalogue, David Exurgen makes a good case about, you know, that the king was actually, you know, you could argue that he was quite keen on people like Jura and Bruegel and what have you and Holbein. Um, and I was in, I was pleased to see a, a Rembrandt in the show in one of the, one of the further rooms, um, a picture described as Rembrandt's mother and, um, I thought what I would have loved to have seen actually was the Rembrandt self-portrait, which is in the Walker Gallery in Liverpool, um, which I think you know it's the first—it's really the first Rembrandt that comes to the UK—and Charles brings in here, uh, or he's given it, and so we we can assume that Charles admired it in some way, Um, and so you know you can get a sense that that Charles was you know mad keen on contemporary art, so you can you can get a feel of. Of just how rounded Charles's collecting skills were from this show—that it wasn't just the Titians he was going after, but he was looking for, you know, who knows, um, the Coons or the Hursts of his day.
0: Another important triumph, I think, is is the works which uh, are in a British collection. They're in they're in the Royal Collection, there, and they're normally uh, shown at Hampton Court by Mantegna, and they're rather one feels they're rather underplayed at Hampton Court but but in the Royal Academy they're given a, a really fantastic uh, treatment yes someone at the private view said to me the Mainteneers have looked
2: you know they've look they look here better than they ever have done uh, he was absolutely right the lighting is fantastic in that room the the color uh, that they're set against is fantastic um, and for the first time you can stand and admire them I think as someone like Charles the first would have admired them they're in a large room and they that, that's that's it in that room. There's no there's no cramming in of anything else, and that's another thing about this exhibition, which is it's beautifully hung uh, and beautifully paced. You know, the, you're not overcrowded, uh, and the spaces all work uh, brilliantly. Um, now at Hampton Court, of course, those things are basically kept in uh, a glorified shed. I used to live near Hampton Court and we go and see them quite often, um, and that's one of the things this exhibition does make you wonder about. Actually, is that the Royal Collection? Um, wouldn't it be marvellous if there was a sort of purpose-built somewhere gallery in which all these jewels of the Royal Collection could be seen in proper exhibition
0: space? Indeed, I felt I felt very much the same. I mean, one, one should say that around half of the show, I think about 80 of the 160 works are from the royal collection and and one is very conscious as one's walking around lent you keep seeing lent by her majesty the queen you see how successful therefore charles ii was in in regathering these works but also there is a as you, as you say there is a sort of sense in which wow what wouldn't this be amazing if this was a if this was in the free national collection if people if we could go and see these at any time we wanted rather as we do in the national gallery
2: yes or better yet you know st- um more fairly perhaps it's the wrong word but, but spread around the regions and, and up here in scotland i particularly uh feel that scotland gets um a pretty uh, a raw deal from the royal collection you go around the palace of Holyrood house there's not many great paintings um but you know what i've often had a sort of suspicion and it's just maybe me being optimistic but i, I feel that soon actually the royal collection might uh change maybe in a, in a new reign there may be a, a move to change things i mean the queen's gallery is uh a good space for doing exhibitions and they put on some of the best exhibitions you'll see but i wonder if maybe you know one day partisan james's palace or something will be made into a more permanent gallery space
0: indeed it's a it's a curious question now as well as all the highlights uh, you've got some criticisms of the show haven't you well
2: you know uh i just mentioned the royal collection exhibitions in the queen's gallery of which i'm a huge fan because you always get uh, a brilliant catalogue and a proper sense of narrative and context. Um, and and I think, you know, the Royal Academy is a, a centre for artists putting on exhibitions and that's what it does best. This is a great space and it puts on a wonderful visual show. But um, um, a few people have said to me and I, I sympathise with them that there's, there's precious little context. Um, you know, what was Charles I emerging from and what was he going into and how did the art collection play a role in that? Um, so... Sometimes, you know, in exhibitions, the, the context thing can be done to death. I mean, sometimes you go to an exhibition and say, take Britain, and there's too much context, or, you know, and they try and give you some contemporary resonance, which is the worst of the lot. So here in the Royal Academy, you don't get any of that. And in one sense, it's refreshing. So, but what we end up learning is what Charles collected, and when he collected it, but not why he collected it. And uh, I think that's a bit of a shame.
0: I think it's the kind of show of Charles I's collection that Charles I would have put on himself, actually. <laughs>
2: yes, that's a very good way of putting it. Um, it's all about him and, um, you know, the the poor sorts who coughed up the cash to put the collection together, which in part led to the Civil War and him losing his head and a, and a revolution in Britain. Well, they don't get much of a look-in.
0: And what about the catalogue?
2: What do you make of that? Uh, it's, it's handsome enough, um, but... Uh, it's got some rather, th- I mean, you know, there are some, th- some well-written, but rather thin essays, some of them by the usual suspects. And uh, I don't think we learn a great deal new. I think when I was working in politics, and we, you know, we sort of agreed and admired what the other side was doing, but we wanted to say something uh, picky about it, we would say, it's a missed opportunity. Um, and I, I think in, in the sense that the Royal Academy exhibition is a wonderful show, uh, the catalogue is certainly a missed opportunity because it would have been a good moment when assembling all this stuff to do some really compelling new research and find out some new things and and put it all into a better context.
0: (laughs) Bendor, thank you very much. Okay, pleasure. Charles I, King and Collector, is at the Royal Academy until the 15th of April. You can read more from Bendor at theartnewspaper.com and on his own website, arthistorynews.com. Now to the U.S. First, I'm joined on the line by Jory Finkel, a regular writer for the art newspaper based in Los Angeles. Jory's going to tell us about the shows to look out for from Chicago westwards. Jory, we're going to start in Chicago. So tell me me about the show that you've chosen there.
1: Right. So in Chicago, there is a show coming up in February, opening in February. Um, I strongly believe in our right to be frivolous by Munira al Sol at the Art Institute of Chicago. This is her first U.S. show, um, and it's a big one. Um, It's organized by Hendrik Folkerts, who was one of the curators of the last documenta, and she was in in the last documenta as well. Um, And the title of the show is also the title of kind of the main series featured, um, a series of drawings, portraits, that she's been working on for the last five years, of mainly Syrian refugees. So Munira is a um, Lebanese artist. Uh, Her father is Lebanese, her mother is Syrian, and she lives mainly in Beirut, also in Amsterdam area. Um, And she started this, series of portraits in Beirut when she noticed really the flood of refugees coming in from Syria. She noticed a lot of new faces in her neighborhood. And she, she thought that drawing their portraits was a way of kind of welcoming them into the community. And so I think this series is, is a real window onto the refugee crisis in a more personal or intimate way.
0: It seems like a very important show to be doing in Trump's America.
1: I think so. Um, And I think the curator, Hendrik Folkertz, believed that. Um, He said that he made this show one of the conditions of his taking this new job at the Art Institute of Chicago as curator of modern and contemporary art, that this is the kind of show he thinks is urgent and relevant right now.
0: Great. Now, there's another Chicago show that you want to talk about as well.
1: Right. Um, And this is further along. In May, the Smart Art Museum will have the first museum survey of the self-taught Thai painter, Tang Chang, outside of Thailand. Um, So this is the big play to put Tang Chang, who died in 1990, I believe, um, on the map internationally. And what they're really trying to do is situate him as a pioneer of abstract painting, along with the abstract expressionists here in America. Um, In the late 1950s, he stopped using brushes at one point and began using his body to make these very, physical, visceral, expressive, abstract paintings. I've only seen a little of the work, but it reminds me of kind of Alberto Burri on the one hand, and then there's another more calligraphic series that um, feels a little bit more like Robert Motherwell.
0: One of the things it speaks to is the desire of museums and galleries in the Western world to try and re-establish the notion of what modernism is by looking much further beyond Europe and the US.
1: That's right. A notion of global international modernism. Absolutely right. I mean, we've seen it here in Los Angeles with these important mono ha surveys um, that Blum and Poe have initiated. Um, maybe that's postmodernism, but, um, but in the same spirit, trying to establish what else was going on, what was going on in Asia at the time, um, that is really relevant to our Sense of art history. This is interesting too because it's a pet project of a new curator at the Smart. Her name is Oriana Caccioni, and her title is Curator of Global Contemporary Art. So I think your point is absolutely right, Ben.
0: So, from an artist who the museum is seeking to establish in the States to an artist who couldn't be more established in the States, Jasper Johns at the Broad.
1: You got it. Um, Yeah, Jasper Johns, something resembling truth. I think is the obvious blockbuster of the year. Certainly in Los Angeles, um, the Broad is the only American venue for this big six-decade survey of Jasper Johns um, that began at the Royal Academy of Arts in London. Um, we're expecting more than 120 Jasper Johns works in all different mediums. What I'm personally most excited about is uh, what I understand: the first gallery, the first, the entrance of the exhibition will feature a range of flags that John's made over the years um and and I think there is um maybe a political message in that as well um that it it wouldn't hurt right now to think about the real meaning of patriotism here in the states
0: I saw the Royal Academy show and I loved it it was one of my shows of last year And I think actually, interestingly, the Royal Academy show did not open with the flags. It was a sort of group of three pictures. It was, I think a target was one of them, but it was, in a way, it was a sort of, they kind of didn't quite get the, get that first space right. But then from there, you did go into a room of flags. And if it's anything like the Royal Academy show, then that first room will be spectacular, almost sort of drop to your knees in awe spectacular. (laughs)
1: Exactly. Exactly. And so I do think I think this is something that the Broad is doing to put their own spin on the show because they really have reconceived the show in many ways Um, that Jasper Johns is an American artist who took on the most American of symbols.
0: I think one of the things about that, about that Royal Academy show that really brought home, they were quite clever in the sense that they did intersperse, it wasn't in, it wasn't completely chronological. There were some of the later works brought into earlier parts of the show. But a vast, the vast majority of the most recent work was in a sort of large, sort of divided space in, in, right at the end of the show. And it was clearly the weakest work in the show. And I think that, that's an interesting, that will be interesting to see how the critics respond to the most recent work because it was clear. To most of us in the UK that while Jones is a great artist for the last forty years or so, nothing really has compared to the first two decades
1: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I do think I think that's an interesting um, challenge for the curators is what what do you do when the recent work doesn't measure up
0: So now the Getty Villa is obviously one of the landmark institutions in in, in LA and it's been changing recently what what are we what are we going to see in the spring?
1: So the big day for the Getty Villa is April 18th, and that's when we're going to get an unveil of um, the reinstallation of the Getty Villa itself. That um, this is really Timothy Potts, the Getty Museum director's pet project since his arrival several years ago, has been to reconceive and reinstall the permanent galleries at the Villa. And he's doing it for a couple of reasons. Um, One, he wants to make the presentation more historically accurate, more chronological, um, because it had a more thematic presentation before. And the second is that he wants to better reflect our understanding of cultural exchange in the ancient world. So he's no longer telling a story about just Greek and Roman antiquities, but bringing more emphasis into what we would now call the Middle East, um, neighboring countries. And um, this means that all in all, the Getty Villa is getting a serious scholarly treatment in in a way that it hasn't had recently.
0: Another Getty project is very different because it looks at a sort of a really uh, pioneering curator in the contemporary field.
1: Right. You might remember that back in 2011, the Getty Research Institute acquired the archive of Harold Zeman, um, who who they are now saying invented the profession of independent curator. Um, this was one of their biggest acquisitions ever, like a huge archive, so many books, so many letters, so many drawings, that it's taken this many years just to bring the archive to the Getty, sort through it, make sense of it, and make a show of it. Actually, they're making two shows of it. Um, so the GRI will have a show starting in February called Harald, Harold uh, Zeman, Museum of Obsessions. And then the ICALA downtown will be borrowing material from the GRI to, to do something really interesting, I think. Um, they're recreating this jam-packed sort of exhibition that Zeman created in his own apartment in Bern, Switzerland in 1974, with objects that belonged to his grandfather.
0: It's an intriguing show to choose to restage because obviously he's very well known for when attitudes become form and that indeed has been recreated already. And also for Documenta 5, one of the most controversial of all the documenters uh, in 1972. But this is a much more personal and sort of quirky choice to reconstruct.
1: Exactly. I think and a show that was impossible to do until the GRI got all of this material, right? And the material includes... You know, so it's hundreds of objects from his grandfather, who was apparently a hairstylist, a beautician, and an inventor. So um I'm told to expect hair brushes and combs, vintage cosmetics, family photographs ephemera of all sorts. Um, and I'm going to quote one line from the press release, just because I thought they they really did pique my interest with this, that they said the outcome, this exhibition is a surreal and deeply personal installation that collapses the realms of modern art and private life. Um, so I think you're right. I think there's an intimacy and maybe eccentricity to this show that's going to be really interesting to um, experience.
0: And lastly, um, a particular intervention at the de Young Museum in San Francisco.
1: Oh, right, right. So Anna Pravatsky is um, the next artist who has been commissioned by the de Young Museum to do this residency or um, intervention, if you will. And and I mention this because I think the program is getting stronger and stronger. Um, it's a new program at the de Young. They've been inviting contemporary artists to do commissions working with the collection or the buildings in one way or another. And Urs Fischer has done it. Lynn Hirschman has a project up right now called Vertigo's, um, which relates to Hitchcock. Um, and now Anna Pravatsky is, is going to be the next artist with a commission here. You might remember that I wrote about her for the art newspaper a couple years ago when she was selling in her gallery in Los Angeles the shadows of famous artworks like Duchamp's bicycle wheel or Jeff Koons' bunny. Um, her more performative work always emphasizes a notion of radical hospitality. So we don't know what she's doing yet at the De Young, but the photo that they just posted on their website that shows her licking the copper walls of the de Young, I think is uh, quite a bit of a teaser. Um, And um, it it has a little bit of an explanation that she she is interested in the fact that copper is such an essential nutrient for human life um, and that these walls are made out of copper. So the idea, could the museum walls actually feed us in some way? Intellectually or nutritionally.
0: What an intriguing notion. Jory, thank you so much.
1: Thank you, Ben. It was great to talk to you.
0: I'm also joined on the line by Helen Stoilus, our America's editor, to talk about the highlights in New York and the east of the country and some biennials across the US. Helen, I wonder if we could begin by talking about this big range of biennials and triennials that are opening in the States this year.
3: Starting in New York, We have the new museum triennial, um, which is taking a, you know, kind of stridently political uh, focus. Um, I think a lot of artists find that they can't really afford not to have an opinion on the um, on the current situation in the U.S. So the uh, the new museum show is going to focus on things like climate change and and um, cultural representation Um, And then uh, Site Santa Fe is continuing its Sightlines series uh, of kind of biennials. And I've been I I, I went to the first Sightlines and it was great. You saw a lot of um, artists from the West um, and um, a lot of Latino and Native American artists that you don't really get to see as much um, in in New York, uh, especially because uh, Santa Fe's got a great, you know, Native American art school. So they, they have more access to those artists and they support them really, really well.
0: One of the things I'm interested in about about biennials and triennials in the States is to what extent can they sort of gain a hold in? Like you say, it's such a big country. To what extent can they gain a, a hold in the sort of public imagination beyond a kind of local audience? And like, for instance, the New Museum triennial. Is, is, has that sort of um, become part of the sort of consciousness of the city, if you like? Is it, is it a much anticipated show or is it rather like the Tate Triennial was in London? It was kind of important, but it never quite really lodged itself in the kind of city's fabric, if you like.
3: Yeah, well, I mean, the, the New Museum uh, Triennial is a really great place to see uh, emerging artists. So really young artists who possibly haven't had like a major exhibition, um, and you might be seeing more of them in the future, um, it's very geared towards uh, that kind of younger element. The Whitney one is the, the big one in New York. Um, and this year, actually, we're getting the Carnegie International, um, which is the I think it's the oldest biennial exhibition. It, hap- it now happens every five years or so. Yeah. Um, and that is in Pittsburgh. Um, and that they're, they're working on that. We don't really have a lot of details yet on what the artist will be, but the um, curator has been very much trying to make her process um, a little bit more visible. They have this, um, online portal and she has written a little bit about her travel to kind of research, um, artists to include in the show. Um, and they have, a this thing called the Tamo Shanturn drawing sessions, which is, they bring artists into Pittsburgh and, and they involve the community, um, in these kind of workshops, um, that will inform the, the exhibition. So, Um, that's a big one in October that I'm looking forward to I've I've never been to the Carnegie International so I'm looking forward to making it out there
0: now this as well as a raft of biennials, there's a there's a whole series of really enticing looking solo shows let's begin with Trevor Paglin who I know you've had an interest in his work for a long time Helen
3: I have yeah I'm a, I'm I'm a long time fan of um Trevor's work. He's really smart. He didn't win the uh MacArthur Genius Grant for nothing. Um
0: <laughs> it seems to me that he's if you like the emblematic artist of the sort of post Edward Snowden era. He's an artist that seems to relate to that kind of exposure of the surveillance culture that the government was enacting.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And he he looks at those those systems of power, he looks at surveillance and the pervasiveness of technology, and he um, sees, you know, what kind of impact it has on us as a society, on our kind of, you know, mental state, our, the way we look at the world. Um, he's working right now with AI, and he's uh, he's kind of looking at the way computers see the world, which I think is really interesting. and And what images and ai has in its artificial mind and how that compares to what we see and what what is the kind of process of seeing
0: now we're going to talk about two exhibitions at the whitney this year um and they're figures with very contrasting levels of fame but coming from the same city new york
3: yeah so um it, this summer the whitney is having um uh the first kind of major solo um, survey of the work of David um who you guys might not know that much about um, in England, um, but he's really big in New York. He's a big figure in um, the New York um, East Village scene in the 1980s and kind of the, um, you know, early uh, gay... Art scene. He was one of those artists who really um, responded strongly to the um, AIDS crisis in the '80s.
0: And the last show that we're going to talk about is a show which is actually right at the end of the year, but it's a monster show.
3: Yeah, it's uh, we've got a biggie coming up. It's the pop show to end all pop shows, Um, Andy Warhol. It's opening at the Whitney in November, and it's strangely the first big retrospective of his work since 1989.
0: That's it, organized by an American institution, we should say, because they have been European ones, right? So
3: You see his, his work, you know, constantly um, in bits and pieces, in exhibitions, everywhere. But this is the first time that it'll, it will be a large survey of his work, um, and it's curated by Donna DeSalvo.
0: And Donna, Donna knew Warhol. I mean, that's one of the most important things that Donna, she actually curated the Tate Modern show, I think, in, t- in 2002, and she knew Warhol. She interviewed him. She worked with him. So, you know, having that sort of intrinsic knowledge, I think, is really important.
3: Exactly. Um, so she'll have a really kind of um, unique and personal um, view of the artist. Um, which I think will be fantastic and then so it opens at the Whitney and then it's going to travel to San Francisco Museum of Modern Art and the Art Institute of Chicago so audiences across the country will get to see it which is great.
0: I suspect it will be one of the best attended American shows in history.
3: Get ready for some long lines.
0: (laughs) Helen thank you so much.
3: Great thanks Ben.
0: Don't forget that the current print edition of The Art Newspaper has an extensive guide to the year ahead. If you like the podcast, please subscribe and if you're feeling generous, please post a rating or review. You can also let us know what you think on Twitter or Facebook at The Art Newspaper and follow us on Instagram at theartnewspaper.official. Until next week, thanks for
3: listening.